Well, as we continue our freedom series, today's topic is freedom from legalism. Now, legalism is something we talk about pretty regularly here at Church of the Valley. And just so you know, we're not for it, we're against it. All right. I was thinking about some places outside the context of church where legalism comes into play. So the legalist at work acts like the terms of employment are the most important thing and they're not that interested in the mission of the organization. The legalist at school always asks, well, that's beyond the test. The legalist in marriage says, I will love you if you do X and you will love me if I do Y. And legalists in basketball made the final 90 seconds of the game time in the Suns Clippers game last Tuesday take 33 minutes of real time, scintillating. We'll try to beat that record today. Legalism is everywhere and it's natural, but that doesn't make it good. And I was thinking on the way over to record this about uh, a movie that I saw uh, some time ago called A Mighty Wind. It was sort of a send-up of folk music. And there's this real schmaltzy, cheesy ensemble folk band who sing a song about do what the good book tells you to and how frustrating that is since the Bible is full of things that are difficult or impossible to follow and therefore be self-satisfied. It's all about something else. Now, the primary passage for this sermon is Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And we're going to start there. I'll read and try to explain some things as I go along. And then we'll look at some other passages. And I'm going to share four kinds of legalists, three different motives, two kinds of love, And the one thing that frees us from legalism, no partridge in the pear tree, it's June. Let me pray before we look into God's word. God, would you see us through this passage? Would you see us through this discussion of freedom from legalism? And I pray that uh, your word would come to life as people hear it and that they would hear what you intend them to understand. Would you use how Matthew wrote his gospel, how Paul wrote his epistles, so that we understand what it is you desire from us. And I ask God that it would be your applications that come to mind and not just something because I suggested it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so verse 17 from Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come, Jesus says, to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Stop. What does it mean that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets? Look, we don't use the word abolish much. So for many of us, I feel like it's primarily linked to the movement to end slavery. The abolition movement is what we tend to call it. Now, in the U.S., when the 13th Amendment was passed, slavery was abolished in the United States. But we know that what continued for many, many years afterwards and to some degree into today are heart attitudes that kept some elements of slavery alive in people's hearts even after it was legally not okay anymore. Now, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. And he says an even more challenging thing. He says he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. That means that the Hebrew scriptures containing the law and the writings and the prophets 
relates to Jesus, as unfamiliar as you may be with its content, just know that Jesus is pointing back to that saying, I connect with this in such a fundamental way that I can be seen to fulfill it. These are about me. So the Hebrew scriptures are about Jesus and Jesus embodies them. He brings them to life. It's he who enacts a faithfulness that Israel, the nation, never experienced. It's he who follows all the laws of Moses, even though the nation of Israel couldn't do that. It's he who exhibits God's character in a way that the nation of Israel never did. It's he who does everything by the book. Jesus identifies with the law and prophets. He's not afraid of the requirements of the law or what the prophets write, which is fundamentally about faithfulness to God or the lack thereof and the consequences of faithfulness and faithlessness. Verse 18, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So Jesus' position isn't that the law is over and can be ignored. Interestingly, it still has a part to play until the world is remade. Verse 19, therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is still talking about commands and fulfillment of those commands. The law still has a role to play. But if you have your Bible open, look at the context. This chapter of Matthew, chapter 5, begins Matthew's description of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is all about the values and the heart attitudes of those in God's kingdom, what God's heart is about, and therefore what his kingdom's hearts are about, what collectively his people are to be about. Verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoo, shots fired. The teachers of the law and the Pharisee party were considered the gatekeepers of righteousness for the nation of Israel at this time. Jesus is calling them out for their legalism, which is looking for righteousness in rules apart from God. Okay, that definition once again, legalism relies on rules instead of or in addition to what God has done in Jesus, what Jesus has done for you and me. Tim put it a different way in the series from Colossians that we did. Uh, so back in December, he gave a definition that I like too. Legalism is justifying oneself through means other than Jesus Christ. Okay, that's good. What's interesting about the Pharisees is that they were a movement attempting to follow God's law carefully so as to earn God's blessing for the nation of Israel. They wanted the people to live in a way that would actually remove God's curse from the nation and by not coincidence, the Roman occupiers from the nation. The Pharisees believed the whole of the Hebrew scriptures were inspired by God, were God's word. They believed in God's ability to resurrect the dead. 
but they added a whole set of rules to make it easier to obey the law. And here's the difference. Jesus knew and taught that the Pharisees weren't keeping their own rules. So in Matthew 23, quite a bit later in the same book that Matthew wrote, verses 2 and 3 say this, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So Jesus is observing that these are the people who are in the place of the lawgiver, the law explainer, and the judge of the law. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Whew. Scripture said that these religious leaders from early in Jesus' ministry were plotting to have him killed. An effective way to make legalists angry, then, is to point out that they don't adequately follow their own rules. And certainly when somebody points out that inconsistency in my life from time to time, my response has not generally been one of, thank you for showing me my fault. So, what are legalists like? The best descriptions that I've read distinguishing different kinds of legalists comes from a guy named Dan Doriani, and I've paraphrased him to create these four types of legalists. So the four types of legalism, legalist one likes rules controlling salvation or God's favor. The rich young man comes to Jesus. He asks how to get eternal life. He wants a rule to follow, and he emphatically doesn't want a person to follow. He doesn't follow Jesus in that interaction. And maybe you feel the same way. If I attend church, if I give, if I participate in this, if I help with that, then God will accept me. Even though really it's about relationship and not about what you're doing. Legalist too likes deeds or disciplines to keep salvation or to keep God's favor. He wants to retain these things. I was talking with my brother-in-law when we were on vacation. Uh, it was great to see him and just get to talk about all the kinds of stuff that we like to talk about. We were talking about these spiritual disciplines, things like prayer and fasting and silence and meditation and service and all kinds of stuff. And we were sort of bemoaning the fact that we've read and been taught far too often uh, in a way that focuses on the practice of the disciplines rather than focusing on the objective of those disciplines, which is relationship with God, which is focus on God, which is adoring God. And so we were disappointed. And I just want to admonish you to beware the tendency to practice a discipline so that you'll be included, so that God will love you, so that God will continue to bless you. That's not what those are intended for. What they're intended for is relationship. And if you're in Christ, you are included. If God has moved you to love Jesus, you are beloved by God. It's not the practices of disciplines that do that. It's God's amazing love for you and the relationship that he established between the two of you that you're responding to. Legalist three likes to create new mandatory laws, not from scripture. Okay, the Pharisees criticized Jesus. They said healing on the Sabbath is work and therefore it's prohibited. Well, the law didn't prohibit healing on the Sabbath, 
perhaps because it's not really work for God to set creation right, and it's not a temptation for anyone else. I have rarely been tempted to go out healing people on a Sunday as much as I would like to do that. Um, Mike, that's a lack of faith. Okay, but what I'm saying is I don't see that as a work to be avoided. I see that as a possibility that only God can provide. And I'll tell you, if he sets me up to do that on a Saturday or Sunday, I am in. The Apostle Paul was a recovering legalist, and he writes to the church at Colossae about how worthless these nitpicky rules are. Colossians 2, 21 to 23. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. I took a lot of Advil last year. <laughs> That's strange, Mike. Thanks for sharing. I had recurring trouble with Achilles tendonitis. And so a complex system of rules to prevent you from getting into sketchy territory doesn't address the underlying condition. This system of rules isn't even really good at treating the symptoms. And in my case, with the Advil, it did reduce the pain and inflammation in my heel. I could function again. But it took losing some weight and no longer ignoring early signs of pain before I stopped regularly having trouble with my tendon. The legalist creates this elaborate routine of Advil and icing while doing nothing to stop the underlying condition. And that's kind of the difference because God's plan is to deal with our underlying sin condition. His solution for us isn't to have a great routine but a great savior and a great king. All right, Legalist 4 emphasizes obedience so much it hides everything else. And this is a tough one. The legal, legalist doesn't necessarily, in this case, intend to be a legalist. This legalist knows that God's grace is undeserved and that he loves us of his own will, not because we deserve it. But this legalist will accidentally communicate and maybe accidentally believe that obedience is the cause of salvation, not the result of salvation. All that, however unintentionally, misses the mark by a mile. So if we don't always understand what our own motives are, what are some possibilities? We've looked at four legalists. Let's look at three motives. So three motives for legalism. First motive is, I want laws so that I know what to do to get what I want from God. And this is like the spouse who says, I wash the dishes so you have to watch golf with me. Uh, that sounds painful to me. Maybe it's your idea of a great time. If that doesn't work for you, let's try this one. I wash the car so you have to watch Heartland with me. This also sounds pretty miserable. If you don't know what I'm talking about, thank God for your ignorance and don't run out to fix it. Motive number two, I want laws so that I know how to shame you. This is weaponized legalism. I'm righteous, you're not, because I set the rules and I can follow them maybe, but for sure I can catch you not following them. So it, it doesn't matter whether it's how you look or how you sound or something else, 
it, it's an arbitrary attack on something that isn't the basis for God's connection with us. It's a bit like a religious version of ethical veganism. No offense to laid-back vegans, if any, but these first two motives can be combined, and that's the, I want to be okay, so I've got a rule against something that makes me feel better about myself, and the rest of you need to share that rule. C.S. Lewis said something that pertains to this in Mere Christianity. One of the marks of a certain type of bad man is that he cannot give up a thing himself without wanting everyone else to give it up. Huh. So if I'm off caffeine, which I do periodically, then all the rest of you have to be off caffeine. I long ago let that go. Do what you want when it comes to caffeine. If you start to get twitchy, you're using too much, okay? Motive three, I want laws because I do not believe God's will is better than my personal ethics. It doesn't matter if I meet God's standard, says this legalist. The standard I need to meet is my own. Here is my code of conduct. Well, A, good luck meeting your own code of conduct perfectly. Uh, hasn't been my personal experience when I tried to live that way. And B, if God has claims on your life, his standard is the one that matters. So if you've come to believe that God has claims on your life, then what God wants from you is what matters, not your own determined ethical stance. What is that standard? Well, he communicated the law and the prophets to Israel. But Jesus claimed to fulfill those. So what does Jesus say the standard is? Let's look at the two loves that Jesus commands. The two commands of love. So from Matthew 29, uh, 37 and 38, here's love one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And I am not doing that. Not with all my heart, not with all my soul, not with all my mind. I desire to do that with all three, and I fall short but that's the ethical standard that Jesus set. That's the command that he gives. That's the command that he says, this law that I fulfill, here's the first and most important element of it. Fully de dedicated and devoted love of God. It doesn't leave a lot of room for other things, like being a Seahawks fanatic, which would be gross anyway, let's face it. Jesus commands a wholehearted love of God, but then he commands a second love. From Matthew 22, 39 to 40, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus said, as the fix said so many years ago, one thing leads to another. In this case, total abandon to loving God doesn't result in a twisted religiousness. It doesn't result in a monastic isolation. It results in love to others. What good laws these two laws are. And out of that relationship and devotion to God and the love that he provides so we can share it with others, we find the one thing that frees us from legalism as Paul describes in 1 Timothy 4.10. One Savior. That is why we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people 
particularly, especially those who believe. Now, last week, Ruth talked about freedom from isolation in our community group. We talked in smaller groups about a time we were isolated, how we got out of that. I was incredibly moved by the stories in my little subgroup. Um, What I talked about was how isolating it was to seek fulfillment in a romantic relationship. And I told about one in particular that was clearly not the best situation for me or the young woman I was dating. But it wasn't until I comprehended that my underlying condition was a feeble relationship with God in which I knew a lot of facts and truth that didn't highlight God's amazing character, his love, or his grace. And even to the extent that they did, they didn't connect with where I had passion, where I had connection, where I lived. Looking to him for fulfillment changed everything for me. And soon after that, I met a woman named Karen Madsen who had recently undergone a similar process of discovery of what vibrant, dependent, passionate relationship with God could address in terms of underlying conditions in her life. 21 years of marriage later, we're still learning what that relationship with our maker can be, what it can bring. Now, the apostle Paul, the Pharisee turned apostle and evangelist to Gentiles, told the church at Philippi about a similar transformation he experienced, moving from the things about himself he was proud of to the unbelievable, spectacular offer of being in Christ. So in Philippians 3, 7 through 11, he wrote this, but whatever were gains to me, these things of his past life, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Nothing compares to you, Paul says to God. I consider them garbage. I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is how we're freed from legalism. We embrace and pursue all that God offers us in relationship with King Jesus and by the indwelling and comforting Holy Spirit. This freedom is going to take us to places that are more exciting and more terrifying than we could ever experience if we're living in a box of rules created by ourselves or others. Because what God designed us to do, he designed us to do in this unbelievable, spectacular, overwhelming view that we get of him in Jesus, in relationship with them. And that's what I want to pray for, for you and for me, that we would live in that, in whatever it means for us today. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that we're not bound by uh, philosophical ethical standards. We're not bound by the standards of our, our environment, our community around us. 
what we're bound by is your love and your plan to make peace with us through Jesus. And I thank you that he satisfies everything in the law and the prophets, that he fulfills everything that was needed and that we get to experience fullness of relationship with you. Would you allow us to see the thing you want us to notice today where we are putting our confidence in a rule that's an addition to that relationship, a rule that's replacing that relationship? Would you draw our attention in such a way that we can see what garbage that rule is, what garbage that ethical stance is, even if in the abstract it's a good thing because it's an impediment to relationship with you, would you help us to see it? And would you help us to fix our gaze on the one that you sent to take care of that? I'm so grateful for how you continue to do that for me. And I pray that each one of us would experience another step of that this week as we rely on you for freedom from legalism. I pray it. In the name of the one who set us free, Jesus, amen.